0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Common Sense with Dan Carlin, Moyers & Company, The David Packman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, Economic Update with Richard Wolff, The Majority Report, and The Young Turks. And a quick story that when my girlfriend asked me how my day was going today, and I told her that I was just working on overthrowing capitalism, her word to the wise was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Good advice.
1: I see it on every street corner. I have no idea um, from city to city, town to town, how representative this is to your life. I can just say that between Los Angeles and, and Eugene, Oregon, where I live, it's 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 a crisis, folks, is what it is. Do you see all those people on the street corners? Do you see all those people holding signs? Do you see how stretched? You know, the city services are to help people who are falling out of the middle class into poverty. Do you see how little we do for the poverty question? Do you see how low on the totem pole it is in terms of a political concern for either party? This is a growing, horrible problem in the United States of America that you may think is not going to affect you because you're doing okay and you're one of the hard-working people who went ahead and got yourself an education and and put time into a career and you saved your money and all that so you're going to be fine and those other people had they done a better job of preparing for life and everything wouldn't be in this mess but here's the problem ladies and gentlemen you're attached to those people more than you think you are where's the consumer spending numbers which is going to increase all of our prosperity back to you know, levels where we're all making some money, right? Where is the consumer spending? The consumer spending is a function of prosperity amongst your people. And we have gone down on the prosperity level, and we are continuing to drop. And it is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And we're talking about man-made political problems that will go away in a week. And all I hear, the only thing I hear about these people who are suffering so badly right now comes from people who want to make them suffer more. What is this cutting off of food stamps you hear from the government and the Republicans? This this is more of a Republican thing, let's be honest here. The cutting off of food stamps, and you'll hear them say something like, you know, more people are, under, are using food stamps under Obama, blah, blah, blah. And you want to say, wait a minute, people are using food stamps because they aren't making enough money. The problem is that our people are not making enough money, not that they're forced to use food stamps because they don't have enough money. And what's interesting is to hear the two Democrat and Republican standard lines about this because they both are just flawed. The Democrats will say things like, well, you need to get these people into job training programs and uh, and re-technify them and all these kind of things. And the Republicans will say things like, well, look, these people have cell phones, you know, and they have satellite. I mean, but the poor now isn't what poor used to be. These people aren't starving on the street, you know, and a lot of them have made their choices and ended up where they end up and this and that and the other thing. And folks, to me... That's a very easy way to say we don't have to care about the poor people and not caring about the poor people is going to bite us all in the ass. You're going to have a poorer country and that's not good for any of us. Do you remember that infamous Citigroup notice to investors? I think it was taken off the internet but people have saved it and you can find copies of it. Basically, uh, several years ago now, um, in, in trying to figure out how to organize their investments, and we've talked about this before, so my apologies if you've heard me bring it up, but we talked about this internal Citigroup memo where they were explaining that the financial trends were changing, especially in the developed countries and especially in the United States, and that the idea of a giant sort of bell curve, middle income society was going away, and that the trends were that most of those people were were bleeding down into the lower level, but you were ending up with a, with a growing super-rich category, and it's the famous, uh, plut- I think the plutocracy is the way I've always said it. I think it's plutonomy, they said in the um, Citigroup memo, if I recall, because I remember being going plutonomy. But the idea was they weren't making a value judgment at Citigroup about it. They weren't saying this is good or this is bad. They were simply going, okay, when organizing your investment portfolio, bear in mind that these are the current trends, and, and basically they were saying, that, that the global economy would, would still be okay because there'd still be a lot of spending on luxuries and consumer goods and stuff, but those, the spending would come from that 1% group. It wouldn't come from the giant bell curve middle class consumer the way it always had. So just changing trends to be noticed uh, as we move into a plutonomy, you will want to alter your investment strategies. Um, I'd like to see government focus on us not moving into a plutonomy.
2: Looking at the economy, how do you see the U.S. economy five years after the great crash? Well, I think it's, it's actually largely healed. The The evidence... Um, We have from previous studies uh, of crises, it tends to take five to seven years to get through the process of deleveraging and so forth. Now, the US economy clearly has some very, very big issues and problems. I think rising inequality and the plight of the middle class are the most important uh, structural problems. The long-term trend growth issue, how fast will the economy grow in the longer term? That's, I think, a very, very big issue. But in terms of dealing with the crisis, the US is clearly ahead of anywhere else. The deleveraging has been very substantial. There's been a big reduction in household debt with default, which is sad, but it's happened. The financial sector is clearly healthier. Uh, and lots of problems in it, and we can see this with J.P. Morgan. But it, for example, but but in the financial sector is clearly much much healthier. The housing market has corrected. You've got a big energy boom. Uh, energy prices here are lower than in any other developed country, and you're becoming largely energy self-sufficient. There's still a very powerful innovative engine here, though you need to continue. To, to uh, fund the research, which has been the basis of this, and that's a government function, a fundamental government function. But innovation is still there. So, and and you survived really quite well this year. A massive fiscal tightening. We've had an enormous fiscal tightening, about three percent of GDP. There's so, the, take, with the sequester, that's, that's the sequester, that's and that's the sequester, and which uh, is really uh, budget cutting. And exactly, it, it's too much, and it should have been done in a different way. I think the tightening has been far too much. You could have had a much stronger economy, a much lower unemployment, if you hadn't tightened the fiscal position uh, from uh, uh, as by about three percent of GDP. And now the fiscal deficit, is four percent of GDP, it's, it's fallen by about seven percentage points in the last in the last uh, three years. So it's a m- massive shift. Uh, the and yet the economy is growing. So I actually am quite confident. You know if nothing disastrous happens in this sort of area, that we might see two or three years, maybe longer, of really strong growth in the U.S., and it will look a very, very good post-crisis uh, recovery. But the sequester, which began earlier this year, is supposed to deepen in the new year. Yes. In 2014, that's not promising. Well, this is where the budget discussions go. go. Uh, I don't know what deal they will do, but I would hope that they would focus on where the issue really lies, which is the very long term, but way into the 2020s and 2030s, focusing particularly on the health cost situ- issue, which is the core fiscal issue in the US, and not tighten the sequester, in, indeed they should get rid of it, they should have a more rational budget process. I think actually the US is clearly cutting the economic functions of the government too far, it basically being reduced to just defense, interest, social security and Medicare. There are other things government needs to do which are ch- shrinking dramatically to a tiny proportion of, of uh, national income. It's a tremendous mistake. So I think you should relax budget, uh, not uh, tighten further. So there are, is a worry there. Would you agree that despite what happened this week and the political victory that President Obama has has Seems to have won. Would you agree that the Conservatives have really won the argument about government? I think that is true. Uh, What has surprised me is how little pushback there has been from uh, the Democrat side in arguing that the government really did have a very strong role in supporting the economy during the post-crisis recession, almost depression, uh, that the stimulus argument was completely lost, though the the economics of it were quite clearly right, they they needed a bigger stimulus, not a smaller one, it helped, but it didn't help enough because it wasn't big enough, and they're not making the argument that government has essential functions which everybody needs in the short run, well, we can see that with the national parks, but also in the long yeah. run. The, the strength of America has been built in my perspective, particularly in the post-war period, since the Second World War, on the on the way that actually the public and private sectors have worked together with the government providing enormous support for research and development. It's been the basic support of America's unique position in scientific research. You look at the National Institutes of Health, which are the most important medical research institutions in the world, uh, these are all products of the willingness of the United States to, to invest in long, in the long-term interest. Then there's the infrastructure. Think of the highway program, uh, which was the most important infrastructure project under the Republicans, uh, interestingly. And those arguments seem to have been lost. So I am concerned that, that the government, that I think Grover Norquist once said he wants to drown in the bath, if you drown your government in the bath, in the modern world, we don't live in the early 19th century, it's a different world, uh, that, that the long-term health of the United States will be very badly affected. It's strange to me that a government which has obviously achieved very important things, think of the role of the defense uh, department in the internet, uh, has achieved yeah. such important things, it's just one of many examples, that it should be now regarded as nothing more than a complete nuisance. And the only thing you need to do is to cut it back to nothing. And it does seem to me that the Democrats have, for reasons I don't fully as- understand, basically given up on making this argument. And so, in a way, the conservatives, the extreme conservative position has won, um, because nobody is actually combating it. So it's only a question of how much you cut and how you cut it, rather than, well, what do we want government for? What are the good things about it? What are the bad things about it? How do we make it effective, and how do we ensure that it's properly financed? I
3: lost my job when they shut down the short-night
4: Chance car rent by the way, mortgage is due. A Baltic
0: Avenue.
4: And took the whole American pie. Them knotted crumb for the rest to survive. Our race has been run, our neighbors got to.
5: Joining us today is Richard Wolfe. He is Professor Emeritus of Economics at my alma mater, the University of Massachusetts, currently a visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. Professor, I wanted to talk to you about this idea of capitalism as a, a as one single thing. You know, we hear a lot. For example, in the discussion about Obamacare, there were accusations that, oh, it's communist and we need a capitalist system. We hear discussions of capitalism is a better system or a worse system than whatever other system. So I think a good place to start is, how big can the variations be uh, under what we still consider to be capitalism in terms of how it actually functions within society? Is there a broad range or does capitalism just mean one thing?
6: I think like all the systems, economic systems, that we know of in human history, it comes in a variety of forms. Uh, Slavery came in a variety of forms. Feudalism came in a variety of forms. Uh, There's no reason to be surprised, dismayed, uh, by the fact that capitalism likewise uh, displays a variety of forms. Uh, For example, we called 18th and 19th century Britain capitalist, but it was different from the United States today in countless ways. We even see that um, France or Holland or Sweden uh, refer to themselves as capitalist today, and most people do, but they're quite different from the capitalism that exists, say, in Brazil or Nigeria or India or Canada. So here, if you look historically over time and if you look from one country to another, capitalism uh, takes uh, countless forms. Let me take it one step further. Some of the things that distinguish one form from another are sometimes so upsetting to people that they need to make an argument, I'm never quite sure why, that what we have here is not another form of capitalism but something fundamentally different. Uh, So let's take the example you began with. Obamacare, by giving the government a a bigger role in the economy represents socialism or communism well that's a strange argument when you remember that for example all veterans in the United States are taken care of by a government medical program Uh, the veterans hospital across our country provide government subsidized medical care which the same people never dream of referring to as socialism or communism likewise when you get to be over sixty five years of age in the united states you get medicare which is a government organized medical insurance program uh, we have a public post office uh... people in the tennessee river valley uh... get their electricity from a public utility countless cities and towns across america have public power stations that are run by the government which sells the electricity to the citizens of the community and anyone who would seriously refer to all of that as socialism would begin to get very complicated in his or her analysis because that's part of the united states and has been throughout our history and i don't think most people think that way one more example in the soviet union which is sort of the paradigm case of a Socialism or a Communism. uh, Here's some little-known facts that can show you how complicated this this is. Immediately after the 1917 revolution, the then leader of the Soviet Union, Lenin, uh, went on the radio and guaranteed to all the peasants of Russia, and let's remember it was an agricultural country, 95% of people made their living from farming, He said to them, I'm going to distribute the land of Russia under the new socialist system, and it's going to be, here we go now, every person's private property, which it was for the next decade. In other words, the Soviet Revolution not only didn't abolish private property, it guaranteed it. And that is an important point to recognize that the conventional notions of how you distinguish capitalism and socialism or capitalism from other systems is really uh, not very good. It doesn't work real well. What we really have across the modern world are different forms of capitalism, some with more public employment and public power, others with less, uh, and variations across the board.
5: So it seems not only are, when, I guess what, what the audience could take from this is when you hear a conversation going on about the, about an economy or a country or a society and you hear these blanket statements about capitalism or socialism or whatever the case may be being uh, you know kind of objectively good or bad not only is it misleading but it's kind of an empty conversation in that you you know nothing about the reality of that system simply from knowing its one word name do you
6: yes it's a little bit like taking seriously a bitter argument between two people you know as they hurl uh, insults and antagonistic remarks to one another. I'll, I'll, I'll pick an example. Uh, a calls B a devil. Well, I mean, you could take seriously that this person being called the devil uh, is some agent of Satan or some other imagery, or you could understand that when tempers are flaring and the heat is high in a conversation or a dispute, People use words as kinds of insults Mm. uh, to attack each other, but they don't have really much analytical contact. A, calling B a devil doesn't really mean we ought to spend a lot of time uh, checking out whether B really has horns under (laughs) his hair. You know, it it, it mistakes the the situation. And when people yell about the, the Soviet Union, you abolished private property, it's ignorance basically and it it doesn't help us understand what's going on
5: in the very limited time we have left there's one very specific fear that is very that's used quite a bit kind of with the context of the american dream very often you hear fear-mongering around any type of collectivist idea in the united states which is the next thing you know you won't even be able to work as hard as you want to make as much money as you want right in in some way if 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 there is a move towards collectivism you can't be an entrepreneur and grow a business that's like a very specific fear that is used uh... uh, to to kind of scare people away from anything collectivist is there any truth to the idea that historically speaking Entrepreneurship goes away when you have anything but pure capitalism?
6: No, there's absolutely none. I mean, every capitalist system of which we have a record has gone through ups and downs in the ease with which new businesses can be formed, entrepreneurs can begin uh, to set up a business. Uh, For example, here in the United States, we have had tremendous struggles about this question. Uh, That's why, for example, we have a government agency called the Small Business Administration that specifically helps, subsidizes, and tries to, quote-unquote, create a level playing field so that small businesses have a chance. And indeed, small businesses have a very hard time in the United States today. Likewise, to take another example, the People's Republic of China, If you look at their 50-year history, it's basically a situation in which sometimes it was very easy, as it has been recently, for businesses to start in this quote-unquote communist society, and there were other times when it was very difficult. So I think you see here again that the ease or difficulty of starting a business is something that varies, crisscrossing all these systems and using labels like communist or capitalist to suggest a pattern misunderstands the variety that has actually
2: existed I'm going back in circulation you brought about this situation to so play this motto on your five. variety is the spice of life
0: one question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of best of the Left well between all the research show prep and actual editing it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month Obviously this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford $10 a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
2: Every night I'm shagging to an old time clamor.
7: Tuesday night. Uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul showed up on Sean Hannity's show over on Fox So Called News. And during that interview, Senator Paul called out liberals. He said, uh liberals have no idea how capitalism works. Uh, actually, you know, let's just set the record straight. It's Senator Paul, who apparently has no idea how capitalism works, because like most Americans, he confuses capitalism with free enterprise. I mean, let's look at this. At its core, the economic system we have here in the United States is based on a couple of basic things. Number one, the right of any person or group of people to run and operate a business, at least a legal business. And number two the right of any person or group of people to buy goods or services from the business of their choice right it's just pretty simple stuff this is called free enterprise right you could start an enterprise you're free to start an enterprise as long as it is legal that's not called capitalism now i realize that you know the people over the years the definitions have gotten fuzzy sort of like democracy and republic but Free enterprise is a system designed to give people the broadest choice of goods and services possible and reward those people who provide the best goods and services. We call them entrepreneurs, right? If you ask somebody like Rand Paul, he'd say somebody participating in this sort of a system is a capitalist. In fact, if you walk up to probably a hundred Americans on the street in any city or any rural area in America and said, Are you a capitalist? Probably ninety five out of a hundred would say yes. Of course I'm a capitalist. I'm an American. Aren't we all capitalists? Sorry. The cleanest definition of a capitalist is someone who uses their money, their capital, to make more money. They make money with money. Some capitalists do this by investing their capital in the stock market. Others do it by investing in other people's startup businesses. They're called venture capitalists. And arguably, these kind of capitalists play a role in our society. I mean, sometimes they help small businesses get on their feet. But here's what you're not going to hear on Fox News or CNBC: Capitalists are not that productive, and they aren't actually necessary. Many of them are just like Paris Hilton. They sit on their butts by the pool all day waiting for the dividend check to come in. They make money while contributing absolutely nothing to the rest of society. And here's the thing. Free enterprise works just as well without capitalists, capitalism, or even venture capitalists. Worker-owned cooperatives are just as successful as any business backed by money from Wall Street. The Mondragon Cooperative in Spain, for example, employs more than 90,000 people, including more than 250 companies. It generates $25 billion a year. There are no capitalists involved. It's entirely owned by its workers. As long as the people running a business are committed, and and, and by the way, people would say, oh, the Mondragon people, you know, they, they are the capitalists. No, they're not making money with their money. They're making money with their labor. So as long as people in a business are committed and their customers like what their business sells, it's going to succeed. I mean, free enterprise works with, with or without capitalists. People say, oh, Harmon, you're a capitalist. I have never made money with money. I've tried to. <laughs> I've tried to. I, you know, I've tried to invest money in the stock market. I have net net in my life lost more money than I made, which is why I think that Social Security is a fine thing, and uh, you know, we all should have pensions. We shouldn't, you know, I, this four hundred one k thing. It's crazy. Anyhow, I digress. Too much capitalism is actually dangerous. All the major economic crises in the past 200 years, every single one of them was caused by a capitalist on Wall Street trying to make money with their money, trying to make more money with their money. And here in America, we seem to have forgotten this fact, and we've forgotten the difference between capitalism and free enterprise. Wall Street and their allies in the Republican Party have taken advantage of this to gut the regulations that keep out-of-control capitalism, Or at least did back in the day, you know, from the New Deal to the Reagan Revolution, keep it in control. And they've done this while they've been, ah, free enterprise. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, we got to deregulate the banksters. It'll help everyday people. Right. What's good for the bankster capitalists is not good for the rest of us. That and some friendly Supreme Court decisions. Are why America is the most unequal country in the developed world and poverty in this country is at an all time high. I mean, just consider this. This is how bizarre it's gotten in this country. During the Reagan administration, capitalists who, you know, they pay their own special tax rate, income tax rate. If you're a, if you're a worker, you pay the, what's called earned income. If you're a capitalist, you pay what's called capital gains. And during the Reagan administration, capitalists paid the exact same rate as earned income, even though they have their own tax rate, as if they're divine beings. But then Reagan cut the capital gains tax and raised the tax on working people. Right now, the top capital gains rate is 20%, whereas the top earned income tax rate for working people is 39%. And to add insult to injury, working people pay payroll taxes on top of uh, that income tax and most capitalists don't there is a really simple fix for this i mean aside from fixing rand paul's ignorance about our economic system <laughs> yeah good luck with that one yeah and that is to i i i think this is obvious to anybody who understands the difference in capitalism free enterprise or anybody who like me i mean i has been in this i've been in the world of business for my entire life I mean Louise and I did start a non profit at one point which we donated pretty much all of our money to and never you know not as a loan never got back i mean that was a good thing i I'm proud of having done that but the businesses that I started the first business i ever started i started with my with an unemployment check i mean I lived on unemployment while I started this company which technically i guess is against the rules but hey I was well, you don't know. Actually, I wasn't making a profit. I didn't make a profit for the first year and a half. And I was only on unemployment for a few months. But in any case, um, the most profitable business I ever started, I started with a $15,000 line of credit on my American Express card. That's not capitalism. That's being an entrepreneur. So why is it that we treat capitalists? Paris Hilton, Mitt Romney. Why is it that we treat the people who make their living... The people who make money with money, we treat them differently. Why do we have a special tax rate for them? We need to diminish the role of people who only want to make money with money. The capitalists. They should pay a higher tax rate than everybody, frankly. You know, you want to make money without working? You want to make money by just, you know, buying stock and sitting back and getting the dividends like Paris Hilton does? You pay a higher tax rate than people who actually work for a living. Or at the very least, Let's just, I mean, I think that the, the, the simple way to do this, we could do it naturally if we just stopped giving ta- capitalists special treatment of the tax code. I mean, right now, thanks to the low cap- capital gains tax, predator capitalists like Mitt Romney and spoiled heiresses like Paris Hilton pay a lower tax on their income than working Americans do just because they make money from money instead of from working for a living. There shouldn't be a bigger incentive to make money by investing than money running a bakery. If we stopped rewarding capitalists for just being capitalists, that would, that would even the playing field. And combine that with, you know, for example, small business loans. Entrepreneurs get a bigger advantage. So, simple solution here. Just a simple solution. Do away with the capital gains tax. Make all income the same. Everybody pays the same tax rate. Let's ditch capitalism and embrace free income. The industries ruled by greed playing with the world at a reckless speed, and they burning resources of every nation, in a world with the modernization. Cause they wanna rule all nations, a black, white, mix and Asia. In this case, there's no discrimination, ruling a world, with capitalization, and a
8: so-called globalization. The way of life, selling salvation, paper free, it's a dangerous situation.
6: Welcome back. This is Economic Update. I'm Richard Wolff with my guest today, Chris Hedges. And picking up where we left off, let me ask Chris if he might give us a glimpse of the book he's now working on at the same time that he focuses on something I know on many people's mind, and that is Given the austerity, given the crisis, given the ugliness of the bailouts going to so few, given the fact that the so-called recovery is really about the stock market and the rich and leaving everybody else behind, tell us from where you sit, given what you've just said about the media, what are the chances for a kind of movement from below, at least say as strong as what happened in the 1930s with the CIO, the socialists and the communists, but how would it look today? Where can it come from? And how do you see Occupy Wall Street in relationship to any of that?
3: Well, when Joe and I wrote Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, the title was always Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. And when, when I write a book, the, the next book tends to come out of the last book. So Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt came out of Death of the Liberal Class, which was the collapse of the pillars of the liberal establishment, the press, the liberal church, which I come out of, I'm a seminary graduate, uh, the Democratic Party, labor, culture, which has been destroyed. And, uh, and, and, and Chomsky's critique, I think, of the function of the liberal class is correct. It, it's a safety valve. It acts to adjust the system, to ameliorate the suffering from below, so that when Conrad Black writes his biography of Roosevelt, He says that Roosevelt's greatest achievement is that he saved capitalism. That's what the liberal class does in a capitalist democracy, while at the same time creating the parameters by which acceptable critique is permissible. So that you can never critique the virtues of the system or the leaders. You can say, well, Vietnam, as Schlesinger did, you know, Vietnam failed, but it was, you know, built on good intentions. That's acceptable. You know, we just lost Tony Lewis, who I knew and I liked Tony, but he did the same, had the same function. When you stepped outside that and you said, no, Vietnam or Iraq, Afghanistan is part of a long continuum of the use of uh, reprehensible forms of violence, whether it's in the Philippines, whether it's in Cuba, whether it's in the Dominican Republic, to further the interests of the capital class. And I just, you know, let me just... Personally, throw in an aside, my family has been here a very long time. We founded East Hampton, New York in 1633, and branches of my family became very wealthy. And they became very wealthy because after the conquest of Cuba in 1898, because they were part of the oligarchic elite, they went in there and carved up the the Hedges family. I'm not directly descended from them, but they're part of the clan. They were the largest landowners in Cuba and but it's a window into how that system works how empire works and and so when you when you begin that kind of critique as Howard Zinn did then you're you're immediately shut down and the people who shut you down are the liberal elite because that's their job that's how they get tenure track positions that's how they get fancy awards that's how they get grants that's how they get endowments and that's how they become morally bankrupt and so The liberal class is gone. The the corporate state in its myopia destroyed it, which was very foolish of them. Yes. Because that was the mechanism by which they could make incremental or piecemeal reform possible. Now the mechanism is broken. Now corporations can commodify everything, including the natural world, which they are very rapidly destroying in the name of their quarterly profit. And so because there are no limits, because as Marx understood Unfettered capitalism is a revolutionary force, which, is Marx, I'm not better not talk about (laughs) Marx in front of you, so you can correct my understanding of Marx later. But uh, I mean, it has built within it that self-annihilic quality of self-annihilation because they don't, they don't, they don't. There are no if there there are no self-imposed limits. So, 40 percent of the summer Arctic sea ice melts, and it's a business opportunity for Shell. You know, it's the death throes of the planet. It's insane. It's like we're all on, in Herman Melville's Moby Dick, we're all on the Pequod, and Ahab's in charge, and Stub and Starbuck and Flask. They all know that it's suicide, and they don't stop. I mean, that's yeah. really where we are. So, so, what are the chances in that well, scenario? It, it means that the ruling class always determines the configuration of rebellion, of response, if. And you see it in column after column, Paul Krugman pleading for a rational response to the economic crisis. I saw Paul. I said, what if the elite can't respond rationally? I mean, you are appealing to a system that I don't believe has the capacity to respond rationally. And his answer was, it doesn't matter. Climate change is going to get us anyway. Um, (laughs) uh, So you have a situation where if you wanted to uh, blunt a movement, rationally, then that would have been a moratorium on foreclosures and bank repossessions. It would have been a forgiveness of student debt. It would have been universal health care. And it would have been a serious, you know, one trillion something jobs program, especially targeted federal jobs. Right. At people under the age of 25.
6: That would have been rational. And they paralleled to what was done in the 30s of when
3: course. the pressure came. And that would have broken any kind of unrest. But the corporate state is so unplugged from the reality. And remember, these people, you know, when you earn that kind of money, you don't live in America. I think a New Yorker writer called it Richestand. You don't fly (laughs) commercial jets. The only service people you, you know, working class people you ever meet are bowing and scraping around you because they want to make sure they can continue to work in your garden or Mm. drive your car. And so you get this elite that in psychological, intellectual, and emotional terms live in the equivalent of the Forbidden City or Versailles. They don't know what's going on. They have not a clue. And that's very dangerous. Because they push and push and push until there is... So I know something's coming. And Occupy was the first... And I was very involved in Occupy, and we can critique Occupy, mm-hmm. and, but I was a great supporter of it. The Occupy was the emergence of that expression. And it's there. It's it's people forget that the, you know, Rosa Parks got on the bus, I think, in nineteen or refused to give up her seat in nineteen fifty four or nineteen fifty five. The Freedom Rides didn't start till nineteen sixty one. When you look at the history of social movements, it's not some kind of straight trajectory upwards. And And uh, there's a great book on King and the Civil Rights Movement by Garrow called Burying the Cross, where he nails that out. I mean, there were all all sorts of failures, Albany, Mississippi, all sorts of of, uh, actions that were taken. And the Black Power Movement at the end. I mean, King was a very lonely figure, like Malcolm. And so the idea that, you know, it's just one success after another shows an uh, an utter misunderstanding of how social movements work. It is the ruling class that will always determine whether or not there will be revolt. And when the ruling class, as ours is, is as corrupt, decayed, and distant from the majority of the population, then it becomes very volatile. So, something's coming. And I've covered movements. i covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania... I covered the street demonstrations that brought down Slobodan Milosevic. I covered both of the Palestinian uprisings or Intifada. You know, and and having just spent two years in literally the poorest pockets of the United States, as a reporter, you know something's coming. But what sets it off? It's usually very banal and unpredictable.
6: Who would have imagined those people setting up tents in Zuccotti Park would do it? You never know. can you... And I know it's an act of imagination, but precisely because of your experience, give us your imaginary of how this might unfold here. Well, something will happen that will tip the balance.
3: And it will be probably completely mundane. It will be, you know, an elderly elderly woman in Utah is about to be foreclosed from her home and commit suicide. Or something. I mean, it will be something minor. And people will just say, that's enough.
6: All the accumulated and then things they've seen
3: because and heard. The, yes, it's that spark. It's like the Palestinian uprising. It was caused by a traffic accident, the first one. Where there were day workers, they were hit by a truck, seven of them. The PLO didn't know it was coming. Nobody knew it was coming. I mean, I always tell the story of being in Leipzig on November 9th, 1989... With the leaders of the East German opposition. And they said, maybe within a year, we will have free passage back and forth across the Berlin Wall. Within a few hours, the Berlin Wall, as an impediment to human traffic, did not exist. Even they don't know. When I covered the, all the demonstrations that brought down Milosevic, I knew uh, Gingrich, I knew all those guys, uh, Draskovic. I'd be often up in the back room before they'd walk out on the balcony with 100,000 people. They were frantic. They, they, once those movements begin, it, you're hanging on by the tail. You don't—they have a kind of life force of their own, um, and and so because the ruling elite, you know, will keep in essence harvesting the country, everything. I mean, nothing sacrosanct anymore. Um, they want everything. Why do they? Why do hedge fund managers want to go into inner city neighborhoods? For, because. The government spends about $600 billion on education. They want it, and they'll get it, just like they want the Social Security money. And they, they know no limits. And because they know no limits, eventually, you know, you, you keep jabbing people with a stick. But what will it look like? And let's not forget that there are very powerful proto-fascist movements in this country that are violent. Uh, the lunatic fringe of the Republican Party, maybe the whole party has gone lunatic, Uh, the Tea Party, the militia, and that, in essence, what we live under is a system of political paralysis, an inability on the part of government to function, at least on on behalf of the citizenry. And that creates a situation where, and, and, and it's one of the reasons why I supported Nader, I wrote many of Nader's policy speeches for him in 2008, and, you know, voted for him and voted for the Green Party. Because what happens is these, and I saw this in Yugoslavia, with the breakdown of Yugoslavia. And the war in Yugoslavia was caused by the economic meltdown of Yugoslavia. Nothing to do with ancient ethnic hatreds. Those are just used. What Freud calls the narcissism of minor difference. What happens is that you have self-identified liberals like Obama, who's not a liberal in, in any traditional sense at all, or as, nor was Clinton. They, they speak in that feel-your-pain language, but have utterly betrayed the core values of, of liberal capitalist democracy. And and so what happens is the longer the paralysis continues, the more the rage grows. And when these people, the center, are discredited, unfortunately, and we saw this in Weimar, is that what happens is that the values they purport to represent are also discredited. Uh, uh, rejected and and that's my fear <clears throat> that those of us who don't care about those values have and have failed to stand up for them as the liberal class has by supporting Clinton who made war on the working class as has Obama that these proto-fascist movements are easily recruited and funded by the most retrograde elements of American capitalism the Koch brothers and others and they do what fascist movements do they speak in the language of violence they take, they channel a legitimate sense of rage and betrayal towards the vulnerable. Muslims, undocumented workers, homosexuals, intellectuals, liberals, feminists, a very long list of people they hate. And that is also part of American culture. My wife's Canadian, so I'm in Canada, and and, and that's not part of the Canadian fabric, but it is part of the American fabric.
6: As a final, because we're running out of time, as a final thing, so... Am I reading you right that we have a peculiar irony? The dominant capitalist business community and the wealthy who sit on the top of it, having destroyed the opposition, the labor movement, the old uh, social organizations, socialists, and all the rest, are now kind of in a hysterical forward rush doing what they do without an opposition, creating such antipathy that it is either going to go to the right with all the forces you enunciated, or there's going to be the something coming you referred to that can regalvanize the left, but that we're going into a period that is going to be one of, to use a scholarly term, social turmoil?
3: Right. Well, we're definitely going towards social turmoil. The problem is the left in this country was destroyed, the organized left, and we're basically starting from scratch at a very desperate moment. What happens, and this is always the collapse of empires, is that the elites finally start to cannibalize themselves. So, what is it that starts the French Revolution? It's when Louis XVI revokes the patents for the nobles. He starts to, to steal from his own support. support, his own base of support. Right. And you see that with the corporate state by defrauding shareholders. You see it with Lehman Brothers, where a guy like Fuld for personal profit, and he's worth a few hundred million dollars, will we'll trash his entire company and bring it down. And that process creates within the ruling elite a tremendous amounts of cynicism, where you, you have an acceleration of just trying to steal as much as fast as you can on the way out the door. Before it disappears. Right. And that's where we are. And I, you know, unfortunately got a scholarship to a lot of fancy schools, including prep schools, so I had to grow up with these rich bastards... And I know them. I know them on Wall Street. People who work for BlackRock and everywhere else. And that's what they're doing. They're stealing as much as fast as they can on the way out the door. So, you know, we who care about an open society are at a severe disadvantage because, and that's another show, the whole psychosis of permanent war, starting with Woodrow Wilson in World War I, afterwards, in the name of anti-communism, all of our movements... Were destroyed. Our liberal institutions, universities, were disemboweled. We don't even have. I think part of the reason you're so important is that we have been even. We've been robbed of the language of class warfare by which we can even understand our own reality. And we have so much to do that it's worth going out and fighting for. But I think we have to be very hard-headed as to what we're up against.
9: the author of Political Economy of Human Happiness. He writes, uh, what conditions best promote more rewarding lives in terms of policy in nations? And he says, the answer is simple and unequivocal. Happier people live in countries with a generous social safety net. Or more generally, countries whose governments tax and spend at higher rates reflecting the greater range of services and protections offered by the state. These findings come from an analysis of data from the World Value Surveys for the 21 Western industrial democracies from 81 to 2007. However much it may pain conservatives to hear it, the nanny state works. Across the Western world, the quality of human life increases as the size of the state increases. It turns out that having a nanny makes life better for people. This is borne out by the UN 2013 World Happiness Report, which found Denmark, Norway, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Sweden the top five happiest nations. And conservatives might also be sad to hear That labor unions have a similar effect. Not only are workers who belong to unions happier, but the overall rate of happiness throughout the country. Non members and members increases dramatically as the percentage of workers who belong to unions grow. So there you have it, folks. Now, this is, the time for a, uh, this is the time for a libertarian to call in and claim that these people are not happy because they don't have freedom. That they're lying to themselves. They're not really happy. They're unfree. They've yet to take the blue pill. So they don't know what's going on. And this is the problem with this country. That the people don't know what they want. Or they think they want something that's going to make them happy. And then they're going to have to walk around with a nanny the whole time.
1: Also, UN survey.
9: (laughs) Right.
10: (laughs) Please. (laughs) New Gallup poll out. What is the number one problem in America? Now, usually people answer the economy because the economy economy has not improved very much, uh, or they might say healthcare, or sometimes they say deficits. No, this time coming in at a clear number one: government dysfunction. Up to 33% of Americans saying that's the number one problem in the country. And you see the chart, and it just goes whoa, sick their line and go way up there. Now, is that because the government shut down? Of course it is, right? Uh, but at the same time, it's actually much greater than in previous government shutdowns. So the context is that people are now getting it. Actually, the reason we have problems with our economy and our healthcare and all those other issues is because of government dysfunction. You know, after the last government shutdown in 1996, when Gallup poll asked the same question, yes, people were very disgruntled about government dysfunction. But it only came in at 17% back then. 17% of people saying it was the nation's top problem. Now it's twice that, at 33%. So uh, Gallup explains right there, this suggests that Americans this time are focusing more on problems with the process involved in governing rather than on the underlying issues involved. And they're actually incredibly right in doing so. Because the underlying problem that's systemic is that the government is causing those problems. So we have income inequality, everybody's... You know, I rate over why? Because we have a system that funds the politicians through incredibly rich people and incredibly rich corporations. So, what do they want in return? Tax cuts. They want uh, subsidies for their companies. They want to be able to put their money offshore. They want deregulation. Now, what does the deregulation do? It pollutes your neighborhood. It allows the bankers to take billions of dollars and then crash the economy and get trillions of dollars. So that hurts all of us, and finally, the American people are beginning to wake up and go, "Maybe that is the actual problem it 's not oh, oh, a process thing i can 't quite understand. No, 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 we understand it. The system is broken. in fact, when you go to congress approval rating it 's down to eleven percent now that 's one point off of the record, even through the government shutdown you know it 's a little surprising they couldn 't hit the record, but eleven uh, <laughs> percent approval rating for Congress. Is um, not something to be proud of. 11%. That's incredible. Think about how low that is. And by the way, again, in April of 1996, after the last government shutdown, yes, it was low, congressional approval rating, but it was three times higher than it is today. It was at 35%. Back then, they thought, wow, it can't get any lower than this, could it? Well, it got much, much lower. Look, the way that you fix a system failure. Is by fixing the system itself, the underlying problem. The way you do that is to get money out of politics. Because the money is corrupting the politicians, which is causing every other problem in the country. Can you imagine? And I know it's actually really hard to imagine, but a system where our representatives actually represent us, wouldn't that be amazing? I think we can do it. You know how I think we can do that. Wolf-pack.com, man. Go to Wolfpack And if you are a person who thinks, hey, you know what? Maybe I can help fix this problem. I I know it's a long shot, but look, I got to tell you, I got an email the other day. I can't reveal who I got it from. But it was a state senator who said, I got people coming up to me in the middle of the street telling me how I got to pass this amendment to make sure I get money out of politics. It's this group called Wolfpack, apparently. And he's like, they're coming. They're everywhere. That's right. And you know what? If you are one of those guys, you could actually make a difference. Could you imagine if we pass an amendment and we actually clean it up? And you can say forever, I helped get that amendment in the Constitution. I helped fix that problem. Yes, I know an overwhelming majority, maybe 99% of people, will sit there and do nothing and complain. But it doesn't take 99% of the people. It just takes a small group of committed people to bring us change. And you could be among them. Wolf-pack.com. Don't accept the broken system as our fate. You know, if you wait for fate, you deserve the fate that awaits you. Take action.
2: One of the uh, progressive heroes in your book uh, is Dr. Seuss.
4: How did that happen? You know, Dr. Seuss's real name is Theodore Geisel. What people don't realize about him was that uh, you think of him as a kindly old man who wrote children's books but in fact he was a progressive and a moralist and when he became a children's author many of the themes the progressive themes that he'd written cartoons about drawn cartoons about became prominent in his in his children's stories and so if you think about the Butter Battle book which is about the Cold War the stupidity of the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union and the War Act, it was made into a movie recently is about how corporate America is destroying the environment. We need people to stand up to them. And then Ted Cruz is on the Senate floor reading green eggs and ham on behalf of a filibuster to stop Obamacare, which hadn't even started yet. And he didn't even realize what is the message of green eggs and ham. Say,
0: I like green eggs and ham.
4: I do. It's don't criticize something until you've tried it. Right. And so the, the message that Dr. Seuss is sending in his books is to young people is to stand up to arbitrary authority and, and take back your own life and, and be a fighter for justice and for your own integrity. And I think that uh, Dr. Seuss would be very pleased with a lot of the movements we've been talking about today um, because these are people standing up to arbitrary authority and big power and trying to take the country back, just like he uh, argued and in, in, uh, wrote about in Yertle the Turtle. Tell us
2: briefly... The story of Yertle
4: the Turtle. Dr. Seuss wrote Yertle the Turtle about a turtle that wanted to be the empire. He wanted to be the king of all he could see. He wanted to be the most powerful person in the land. And he was living in this little dirty pond. And he convinced a bunch of turtles to to pile on top of each other so that he could be on top. He could have his throne. And the more turtles that piled up on, on, on top of each other, the more uh, difficult and suffering was going on underneath. But he was getting to see the whole world, and he was feeling very powerful. And then on the bottom, a little turtle named Mac said, it's really bad under here, can, we, can you let up a little? And Yertle said no. And so eventually, uh, Mac, the turtle at the bottom, intentionally... And the whole pile of turtles came tumbling down and yertle fell off of his throne into the mud pond. And the turtles looked around and they realized he's just like us. He's no more powerful than the rest of us. And that's really what the story is about. It's really It was a metaphor for Hitler, but it was a, a broader story about the need for ordinary people to challenge people in power, to realize that people in power are only there because we allow them to be there, In a democracy, you can take back power. So what would Yertle the Turtle's message be to us today? That we can win, that we can topple the the Wall Street titans, we can topple the big corporations, we can change America in a more democratic direction if we're willing to fight back and we're willing to challenge uh, the the powers that be. And also realize that uh, throughout history, there are always moments when it looks like Yertle is winning. Right? But at the end, Mac had more power than Yertle did because he was able to topple him uh, just by burping. And uh, that really means speaking truth to power, having your voice heard, and Americans are beginning to feel like their voices now can be heard. And that's why I'm optimistic, not because um, I, walk, I get up in the morning with rose-colored glasses, because I really do think that we're at this transformational moment in our history.
8: Hi, Jay, this is Sally from San Francisco. I'd like to respond to the show aired last week on education. There's a false dichotomy operating here as well, and it is that supporting education reform and supporting teachers is mutually exclusive. I'm a professional educator and have been working for the majority of my career over the past 25 years in public education. I'm currently a member of a teacher's union. While I support increased funding to schools as a primary problem with education, I also see that policies of teachers unions have not helped our system nor our cause. Let me be specific. A union modeled after those created to protect blue-collar jobs is not appropriate to protect high-quality professionalism. Too many bad teachers are protected for too long. I wish teachers' unions modeled themselves after the AMA and self-monitored to get rid of those who do not meet the standards of our profession. There is, after all, no malpractice or license suspension carried out by my peers to get rid of those who undermine professional quality for us all. Someone in the show mentioned that teachers in Finland are all unionized. It is also true that they have to meet a very high standard to be accepted into that union, and if they don't maintain these standards, the union itself takes action. This is sadly not the case in the United States. Regarding the acceptance of certain percentage of poor teachers in the field, with all due respect, unlike a bad barista, while not perhaps causing the life and death outcomes of a bad physician or a bad engineer, a bad teacher can still destroy the lives of children. Even more, the fate of society rests on a well-educated population, so the damage done by bad teachers has resounding importance. As a parent with kids in public schools, it is infuriating for others, usually those who can afford to opt out of public schools, to blithely expect us to allow for such entrenched mediocrity. My children are the ones whose needs don't get met. My children are the ones who don't learn math or who decided at an early age that science is boring. As a proud professional, I believe we should not accept bad teaching any more than we accept bad doctors, bad lawyers, or bad engineers. I wish my union would set higher standards for inclusion, I wish my union would stop prioritizing job security over high professional standards of our members. I believe also that the anti-education movement is helped by an unquestioning acceptance of unions, because sadly, the field attracts those who would not meet standards in other professions, and even worse, protects and maintains them. I consider myself a progressive, but I believe supporting teachers' unions without simultaneously demanding higher standards bolsters the right-wing argument that nothing will change about schools unless they throw the baby out with the bathwater. If teachers self-regulated ourselves using methods we know are more accurate assessments of student and teacher performance, we could take the wind out of the sails of reformers who, in truth, don't want to publicly finance education at all. The need for education improvement and teacher job security coexist, and one should not be allowed in the discussion to be used as a tool to block discussion of the other. The more honest we are with ourselves about what we are doing wrong, the more we can accomplish at every level to improve. Let's be honest. Let's put everything on the table. Only then can we effectively counteract the right's arguments and create the educational system our kids truly deserve.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I just have to say that, that that call was... Simply the best series of thoughts regarding the education system I think I've ever heard. Uh, you know, she was much more eloquent than I could be, so I'm not going to try to reiterate what she said, um, but just maybe add on to it a little bit. And what I think was so good about what she did was to complicate the issue, You know, as so many issues need to be. Because right now, the discussion we're having is Uh, You know, debate between are teachers a national treasure, which need to be defended at all costs, or are bad teachers the bane of society, which are destroying our future by failing our kids? And and it's an absurd choice that, that we're given. I think that the teachers union could... Maybe you'd be better described as a flawed hero. You know, I, I wholeheartedly think that maintaining the union is the right way to go, but that doesn't mean the union is perfect. So where there are flaws, that's where reform should be focused. But the corporate reform movement solution is to simply break or bypass the union by pushing for charter schools, which will be run by corporations and ununionized groups of teachers. So, you know, what, what the discussion should be about i mean of course what it's actually about is money because they're trying to privatize the school system and make a profit from it but what the discussion should be about is about high standards of teachers and that's something that no one should be against the problem is that we went with the system of measuring teachers by testing all of the students which you know it sort of makes a degree of sense you can understand the logic that led to that but in reality that system ends up hurting kids more than helping them and so just as a side note, the, the best idea I've heard is rather than going by student test course, do the, the sort of standard 360 review option for teachers. You know, the administration, fellow teachers all submit anonymous assessments of all of the teachers. I mean, and for all I care, like I, I think you should get, uh, you know, student evaluations as well. and And that's how. You know the teachers are are reviewed, and at least one element of the way to you know maintain high standards for teachers. I don't know how they do it in Finland, where they have a, an entirely unionized teacher force, but keep standards high as well. Uh, we should probably look into that. But my theory as to what's actually going on, uh, and ju- just my theory, I'm no no insider information on the teachers union here. Uh, but the union is under such an assault. That they're basically fighting for their lives. And so when you're in that position, they've done sort of the rational thing to make the decision to simply hold the line on the status quo rather than opening the discussion of internal reform at all. And the idea being that any discussion of reforming the union is playing by the reformers' terms, it's accepting their frame of the conversation. And the funders of the reformers would love to just see the unions destroyed which would increase the eventual profits of the public school system after it's been totally privatized. And so any concession that you know reform is needed within the union will just be seen as a chink in the armor to be exploited to that eventual goal of destroying the unions. And so with that strategic reality in place, it may not be wise of them to admit any need for reform during the heat of debate, but I can't agree more with the caller that they'd be better off simply making the changes necessary, which would have the dual beneficial effects of improving teacher standards and completely disarming the opposition by taking away their argument that unions are standing up for and defending bad teachers. It's something that no one should be in favor of. So anyways, those are my thoughts. I'm certainly not an expert, but, but what the caller had to say today was the thing that made more sense to me uh, you know than anything else and made a lot of other things sort of fall in place. Uh, so if, if you have thoughts, the number 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details,
7: i